Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix Special Nutrition Therapy Series, where we're going to dive into the approaches, practices, dietary theories, and healing foods that have been used in the most successful practices across the globe and throughout history. Today, I'm diving back into the archives, all the way back to episode number 10, to share a podcast that I recorded with my friend Tom Maltaire on sulforaphane. I really loved this interview. Tom has such a great knowledge and energy, and it's such an important topic that while we're talking about nutrition, I do not want any of us to overlook. So let's dust off this oldie but goodie and get super focused on sulforaphane. Hey, this is Tom Altier, and today we're going to be mapping the magical component sulforaphane on the 15-Minute Matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on how to use the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be talking with Tom Maltaire. Tom Maltaire is an author and functional medicine educator with over 12 years of clinical practice. He holds both a bachelor's and master's degree in nutrition from Bastyr University, has advanced training from the Institute of Functional Medicine, and is a certified functional medicine practitioner. He's a past faculty member of the Autism Research Institute and was a medical affairs member of Thorne Research. He lives in Bellingham, Washington, and loves to spend time in the mountains with his five children. Welcome, Tom. Hey there, Tom. I am super stoked to talk about sulforaphane. Did I say it right? Sulforaphane. (laughs) You rocked it. <laughs> Love it. Let's so dive right in and talk about, let, maybe we can start with the chemical constituent. Why is this so powerful? Well, it's interesting, right? This is a specific compound that the human body has come to know and love. So uh, my theory is this one, and it could be completely and totally incorrect, but uh, I don't know. Maybe it's not. Um, we, over time, have come in contact with some pretty darn hazardous things on this planet, right? Uh, one was named T-Rex, another one's called the volcanic eruptions, and uh, one we never really adapted too well to because we didn't exist when T-Rex did. But the volcanic eruptions, interestingly enough, all life has kind of adapted to that because it was the primary event that would spew all sorts of crazy, nasty toxins into our air supply, right? So we would have all that heavy metals uh, that we know of, like the mercury and whatnot, that would all of a sudden come from deep in the earth, a heavy metal being heavy, sunk down, and then boosh, burst up into the atmosphere. And wow, we would get covered in all sorts of different gases that could be potentially toxic and kill us. But prior to that entire eruption occurring, there was uh, all sorts of little signaling that was happening weeks and months, if not years ahead of time, which would come in the form of sulfur gases. So what my theory is, is that we've adapted to this particular sulfur concentration signal as cells to know that, hey, man, when you see this sulfur, (laughs) run. (laughs) Right, right. 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 But in this case, instead of running, what we do is we adapt. So we have this little uh, uh, sulfur-like compound, this ile compound that kind of signals to our cells, and it says, 
hey, you know what? You can either run or you can adapt or die. So what this particular compound from sulforaphane is, is a sulfur-based compound has done is it has gone in and it has allowed for the gene transcription, the turning on of specific portions of our genes that allow us to do more, allow us to be more, allow us to be more resilient, allow us mm, to tolerate specific things in our environment that might otherwise kill us. So this compound has been, you know, used to be in the volcanic eruptions, but since we've, we've actually placed it throughout nature, and if you're like me and you wildcraft and you go out in the woods and you consume, you'll, you'll every once in a while get this like sulfury flavor, whether you're getting a, a watercress that grows in the rivers and streams, or you're getting what I love, one of my favorite is a wild bittercress or a wild mm. mustard, something called, uh, you know, the cardamine flexuosa or Pennsylvanica or oligosperma that we have here in the Northwest. You know, one of these bitter crest substances that, you know, tells you, it says, well, wow, wow, you know, this is, this has got a sulfur flavor. Well, just like the way your taste buds recognizes, your cells recognizes, mm. and they seem to have this adaptive quantity uh, of, of ramping up these amazing genes that increase our antioxidant capacity and yep. our detoxification capacity. I love it. And it's, it's kind of a brilliant combination, right? So if we are going to get a toxin in, number one, it's going to cause damage. So when the toxin causes damage, it's going to cause oxidative stress. When it causes oxidative stress, we need to rebalance out those stolen electrons with antioxidants. Well, gosh, these structures get turned on. The proteins get made in the presence of this sulforaphane. At the same time, we have these what's called conjugate or phase two enzymes, these other proteins that get turned on. And these proteins now can grab onto the toxins and shuttle them out of the cells. So we repair the damage, we clear out the harmful substances, and we end up with normal or healthy cellular function. So it's it's quite it's quite ingenious really. Yeah, and you're talking about all the you're talking about its antioxidant properties. There's also antibacterial, anti-carcinogen, which you referenced, anti-cancer, and all of these impact on the genes. Let's kind of presence this in what we're talking about besides those wild foods that you talked about. You talked about watercress, wild mustard. What else? What other compounds that we can consume contain the sulforaphane? Broccoli is one of the biggest components. It's one of the most researched vegetables to contain these sulforaphane compounds. The broccoli sprouts, the young, tender broccoli just coming up in the world, the really best. trying to show it's all, has a fantastic higher concentration of the sulforaphane. But then you go down the line and you do have your crest family. You do have the radishes. You do have the kales. You do have the cauliflower, the Brussels sprouts the arugula, right? So right. I, I like to say broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kale, Brussels sprouts, arugula, radishes. Those are the primary things that people are consuming at their dinner tables, at the farmer's market, at the poo-poo plate, at the party, right, where everybody's cruising around, having right. a little snacks. That's it, right there. Those, and the greens, the, the top of things, right? Like the radish greens, the turnip greens, all of that as well. Um, the, the Right. So we want to not discard those when we're going for the root uh, vegetables as well, because those are going to contain these constituents that are doing influencing the gene expression like you're talking about. So what about the people who are scared of broccoli. You and I have had this conversation before <laughs> because they have thyroid issues and they're worried about goitrogenic properties. So talk to us about eating your broccoli even when you have thyroid issues. 
Oh, I would love to. So here's the reality, and that is that I, I know nothing. You know, I have not spent, you know, four or five decades of my life researching Christopher's vegetables and the effect on uh, goitrogens and, and thyroid health. Um, however, uh, when I was doing my TED Talk on, on broccoli, my TEDx talk, um, I did interview uh, the team at Johns Hopkins, right, with uh, Paul Tell, later Jed Fahey. I was talked to Jed. And um, they were the guys back in 1996 with uh, Paul Talley and Dr. Kang who kind of brought sulforaphane into the limelight of being this like wonder nutrient, this phytonutrient that can shift cancer and, and antioxidant status. Um, and, you know, it was interesting because I said, you know, hey, hey, Jed, I'm, I've been looking at all these different, you know, glucosinolate compounds, these, these glucose and these, uh, you know, uh, sulfur based substances combined together. And I've seen that some of these things can actually wreak havoc on, on thyroid function, according to a couple of articles I'm reading. And he says, you know, I, I don't want to talk about that. And I'm like, excuse me, wh why wouldn't you want to talk about that? He's like, it's ridiculous. And I was like, what do you mean it's ridiculous? He's like, this is kind of a, one of those myths that's been spread around forever, Tom. If you look deeply enough and long enough at the literature, you'll see it's, it's, it's just that it is a myth. The reality is back in the 1950s, there was some milk that was fed to some children in, in Britain and that had come from cows that were eating rapeseed, which we call canola, right? Mm -hmm. But the rapeseed had this high concentration of these glucosinolate compounds and it was abnormally high and the children had some adverse events. And since then, everybody has assumed that now the consumption of all broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kale, Brussels sprouts, whatnot, will have the same goitrogenic type effect. And he says, I just don't see it. So I said, oh, okay, well, gosh, man, this is this is like the guy from the university with the team who knows all about this stuff. Maybe he knows something, right? So I dive into the literature and I'm seeking. And I'm like, wow, well, you know, he's right. I can't really find as much support as people say there is for this. Let's go to University of Washington and talk to Johanna Lampe. She's been spending a couple of decades of her life publishing all this data on the sulforaphane, the goitrogenic effects and whatnot. Let's see what she has to say. So I interviewed Johanna and I said, hey, you know, what do you think about this? This is what Dr. Fahey said. And she said, you know, I agree. You know, I've been doing all these studies on cruciferous vegetables and thyroid function. And I will give people, you know, 2.2 plus pounds of cooked and raw stuff mix. And, and here's the problem. Here's the rub. You can look in the literature and you'll see case studies where certain individuals have been eating raw cruciferous vegetables. And they're eating at a, a level of like 2.2 plus pounds per day for six to nine to 12 months. And they're eating just huge amounts of this stuff. Right. Like nobody else would be eating this much, right? Or balancing it out with anything else. Uh, nor are they cooking it, lightly steaming it, mm -hmm. not doing anything. They're just eating it raw. Those are the people who end up with some complications. So there's usually more factors than what we're being told. So when you go on the blogosphere, when you listen to certain people who have not done the investigative research, such as these researchers and whatnot, they'll just nonchalantly say, don't eat cruciferous vegetables that affects thyroid function. But if you go on PubMed right now and you plug in cruciferous vegetables plus Hashimoto's, you'll see positive studies and you won't see the negative effects that you're expecting. So uh, I would just challenge people to stop and say, wait a second, if two of the top researchers on the planet right, <laughs> are right. saying there's something not to worry about, maybe I need to do a little bit more due diligence. The other thing I would say is in clinical practice, since I've been a nut with this cruciferous vegetable stuff for, for quite a few years now, I don't see people having the adverse events that they would expect if those rumors about thyroid function are true. So I recommend a tremendous amount of cruciferous vegetables, and I just don't see the adverse events happening. I'm glad you spoke into that. And one big question I have for you is raw versus cooked. What do we see in terms of the sulforaphane, the content of the sulforaphane, its efficacy? Does it matter raw versus cooked if we take the goitrogen issue off the table? 
well, let's let's talk story. Yeah. Let's say, well, well, goodness. All right. Yes, we know these sulfur compounds may be coming from volcanoes, but why do cruciferous vegetables contain those sulfur-based compounds? And the reality is they are used as mild pesticides. They are used by the plant to drive away insects. So when an insect bites into the cell wall of the plant, it will free up an enzyme in that cell wall, which will cleave a glucose from the sulforaphane. And now the sulforaphane will taste really nasty, really sulfury, really bittery Bitter. mm -hmm. to that specific insect. And that insect will go, oh, ugh, uh, mm, and not chew the rest of that plant up. Well, interestingly enough, this has a, 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 an application in human consumption. So when we're consuming the broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kale, Brussels sprouts, arugula, radishes, we will bite into those. Well, set them in your mouth, number one, and realize they don't have a lot of that sulfury, bitter flavor. Once you bite into it, you get that. Mm -hmm. Because you're breaking apart that cell wall, releasing this little myrosinase enzyme that cleaves the glucose. So you have a glucosinolate, the sulforaphane. It's got uh, sulforaphane glucosinolate. So the glucose is attached to it. Once the glucose is off, you get that sulfury effect. And at the same time you get that sulfury effect, you get the sulfur activity. So the problem is, is that you get less activity if you have that glucose on it, if, mm. if at all, right? So you want to have that enzyme activated. Now, we know something magical happens when you put an egg in a skillet and you get past right. 118 degrees, right? Mm -hmm. You see that that egg white becomes uh, really white. <laughs> it comes from the egg kind of clear to egg white, right? right. Because you you denature or you shift the shape of those proteins. Well, the same thing happens when you cook the protein of myrosinase. You change its shape and therefore function, and it can no longer cleave that glucose as effectively. So when you overcook that enzyme for a long period of time, right? so you're steaming something for nine to 15 minutes versus three to five minutes, or you microwave something, or you boil something, then a lot of those substances get washed off in the water. The enzymes become deactivated. You'll see 97% less efficacy in some cases of microwaving or boiling you know, for long periods of time. So you don't want to do that. But when you lightly steam something, you have less deactivation. And I won't get into the details, but there are there's, there's just hundreds <laughs> of other compounds in plants, some which might interfere a little bit. So it seems like the lightly steaming is probably the optimal way you can consume, unless you're doing like an arugula or watercress or whatnot, then eating raw is fine. Right. It seems to be, according to Joanna Lampe and some of the other researchers, doing a mix of lightly steamed and raw seems to be fantastic. That's what I was going to say. So mix of the vegetables themselves and the mixed mix of how you're using them, and we bring a little bit more diversity. And then, as you said, we're getting hundreds of other compounds we don't even know we're necessarily getting from those differences, right? The differences in how we right. cook them and the different uh, vegetables themselves. One other thing I want to make sure we talk about as I look at the functional nutrition matrix, we definitely talked about our ancestry. We talked about the triggers and our exposures. We talked about the uh, cruciferous vegetables as a mediator. We're looking at environmental inputs, oxidative stress. Talk to me about detoxification and these compounds. We know the two different phases of detoxification. Well, there's more than two, but um, right. primarily you activate a substance and then you pull it out of the body, right? So one is you put a handle on it in phase one. Two is mm -hmm. you grab the handle and pull it out in phase two. You conjugate, you grab mm -hmm. onto and pull out. 
Well, the enzymes that get upregulated in the human cells with the consumption of sulforaphane are primarily the phase two conjugation enzymes. These are by far, in modern day society, the most important enzymes to have upregulated because a lot of things are modifying our phase one enzymes. Very few things are modifying the phase two. Worst case scenario is you activate a toxin in the body, let's say something like uh, benzyl apyrene, for example, and you make it into an epoxide. And this benzyl apyrene is coming from the air and it gets activated by your phase one and it's far more toxic after it's become activated. It's super duper important is as soon as it becomes activated, something grabs onto that and pulls it up. Well, the enzymes that upregulate that second phase, that pulling out, they're all about the sulforaphane. Sulforaphane, like nothing else on the planet, nothing on the planet really turns on or ramps up that phase two conjugation activity in, in your cells like sulforaphane. So we see the benefits with cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, you name, I mean, we're looking at Alzheimer's right now, they've already looked right. at, at, at autism, you name the disease or disorder, but when you can ramp up phase two detoxification enzymes and antioxidant function, cells come back online, cells come back to normal function, cells do better than they have in decades. So this is uh, probably one of the most important pieces of detox on the planet. Yeah, which is why there's likely that research on Hashimoto's or other autoimmunity and the use of broccoli. So my last question for you, Tom, is have you eaten your broccoli today? You know what? Um, I'm actually steering and I, we're not doing video, are we? No. I have I have a big kale salad in front of me. So while I cannot say I have had my broccoli yet today, I do have my kale salad sitting right in front of me. Beautiful. And I do have pur purple cabbage on that kale salad as well. I love it. Perfect. Well, I hope that question goes out to everyone listening. Have you eaten your broccoli today or some other cruciferous vegetable that contains these compounds in them, the sulforaphane, and it can do its trick. And hopefully you can take this forward to your clients and patients and let them know to eat their broccoli. Thank you so much, Tom. Absolutely. My pleasure, Andrea. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The 15-Minute Matrix team includes my son, Gilbert Nakayama, on sound production, Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook. You can visit us and hear more episodes at 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode, please go to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. We'll be sure to drop into your inbox with a short reminder that a new episode is ready for you. I do want to let you know that the doors to the Functional Nutrition Lab Full Body Systems Curriculum are now open. To secure your seat, you can head over to fullbodysystems.com. Plus, you always have an open invitation to email us. We want to know who you'd like to hear on the podcast and what you'd like to see mapped on the 15-Minute Matrix. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. That's ask at 15minutematrix.com. 
is there anything <clears throat> you want to make sure we get to or um, should we just dive in? Yes, yes. Eat your broccoli. That's it. There you go. <laughs> We're good. We're good. Thanks for That's that. All. <laughs> Less than 15 minutes. We got it <laughs> covered. We are Wait, done. Left in 15 seconds. <laughs> yeah. We don't waste any time. We just get right down to it. <laughs>